We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed hello sunshine i'm alexi lawless and welcome to the state of the union podcast where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red white and blue colored glasses uh this week on the state of the union we'll be talking about liverpool and pulisic and the nwsl and barcelona and bayern munich and Concacaf and so much more uh, but first, joining me as always is my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, before I throw it over to you, I wanted to take a moment here at the top of the show to discuss very briefly uh, what happened over the weekend. Many of you that listen to the show will, will already know, but um, for those that don't, this will, uh, this will be new. Uh, I woke up on Saturday. And uh, like a lot of people, I uh, woke up very excited uh, for the opportunity to watch professional American soccer once again. The return of not just American professional soccer, but the return of professional uh, league sports in a team setting in the form of the NWSL. Uh, North Carolina Courage versus the Portland Thorns. We had talked about this uh, before, and we were made very well aware that the national anthem, which we know has become uh, a point of, uh, of contention, uh, was going to be played, as opposed to MLS in their tournament not playing it. Uh, NWSL decided to play the national anthem, and so there was uh, obviously some curiosity as to how that was going to go. I watched the game, and I was curious to see what happened. And for those that watched, uh, the entire uh, 22 players starting players on the field, CBS showed it, um, were all taking a knee. But what we were seeing, I think, was that new normal on display. And me, in my infinite wisdom in that moment, uh, I decided to, uh, to tweet something, an observational tweet about what I was seeing. Uh, unfortunately, uh, that was not the thing to do. It was poorly timed. It was lacking context, and it was insensitive. Uh, and it was also distracting to what I said uh, was a very important and powerful moment that was going on the field at that moment. And you know, I, have, I have no desire to be needlessly causing people to feel pain or anger uh, or to be anything that causes division, especially in this time uh, in the country. And if you saw the reaction to, uh, to that tweet, that's exactly what, uh, what happened. And you know, as I said, I, I, I regret that it distracted from 
that important and powerful moment that was happening in, uh, in front of us. So I decided to, later on that day, uh, delete the tweet. And uh, I put out a, a small short statement. You can certainly go out there uh, and read it. And I want to just reiterate at this point that, um, you know, this was an organized and unified and peaceful uh, and, and, by the way, promoted type of protest by the league and by a group of players who were certainly sending, uh, as I said, an important message about the changing times and what is happening in our society. And I want to reiterate that I wholeheartedly support not just NWSL and the players, but all players that are bringing attention to the real problems that we have when it comes to police brutality and systemic racism uh, that, that exist. And, you know, that this did distract from this historic and this powerful moment on the field. Um, you know, that's, that was not my intention, and, that, and I certainly regret that it did that. And so I'm, I'm sorry for any of the hurt or anger uh, that it caused. And, uh, you know, I hope going forward that you know, when, when those moments arise that, uh, you know, I think long and hard about, you know, how others are going to perceive this, especially in this, in this, uh, in this moment in time. And so, you know, with that said, like I said, you can go and you can read uh, my full statement right there. And look, while I deleted the tweet, nothing is deleted. It's out there. So you can certainly go find it. Um, the internet is in ink and it will continue to be so. So just because you delete it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And you can certainly go find that. So, but I wanted to address that right off the top of the show before we get into it. Um, and look, I, I know that I will probably be addressing this in, in different ways going forward because this is not something that just, uh, just is going to go away just because uh, you delete the tweet. All right, Mossy, this is not going to be a discussion or a debate uh, about this. And so we are going to continue on with, uh, with the rest of the State of the Union here. You ready to light this candle? Yep. All right. As you know, uh, we have been, well, we have not been doing our normal type of routine when it comes to how uh, we start the show off with uh, a State of the Union. We'll get back to that uh, at some point, probably later on this year. But we're going to jump right into it. There continues to be soccer to be had. As I said in the, in the open, there continues to be soccer that's coming online. We're going to talk all about that. But we're going to start over in Europe where, okay, and this is not going to be a Liverpool love fest because I, I hear people turning off. There's as many people that hate Liverpool as love Liverpool, but you got to give them props. And finally, it's not as if it's a big surprise. This has been something that has been known is going to occur over the last, let's say, six months. But Liverpool finally, from a uh, mathematical standpoint, have won the Premier League for the first time in, uh, in 30 years, incredibly uh, barren wasteland of futility. And uh, there were celebrations. There certainly were a little bit muted um, uh, relative to what they would have been in normal times. But hats off. Hats off to the Liverpool players. Hats off to the Liverpool leadership, uh, including Jurgen Klopp, for giving us what I would say is one of the great teams in club history. And well-deserved the way in which they did this this year you know, they didn't just scrape by, they annihilated everyone and including some very, very good teams and what theoretically are supposed to be the teams competing with them. They left them in the dust. And I think it's a credit to, as I said, the organization and the leadership and the belief and the confidence and the patience, some very, very good management when it comes to Jurgen Klopp, some very smart uh, 
um, and tactical type of additions and subtractions along the way, and players that ultimately go out on the field and do it. Jurgen Klopp can talk all he wants about different things, and he'd be the first one to admit that ultimately the players have to be able to do that on the field, and he puts them in positions to succeed, and succeed they have. So congratulations to, uh, to everyone out there when it comes to, uh, to Liverpool. Let's move this a little bit along, Mossy, because I know you don't want to sit here and say how, how great Liverpool uh, is or are, depending on how you say it. But is this team set up going forward to be a dynasty? Is this, does this validate the, the Klopp? I guess it's an experiment, but let's, let's call it an experiment. Does it validate that? Well, first off, I'm not sure these celebrations were muted enough, but we don't. Oh, really? I, I will stick to the football. You're going to name and shame people out there for uh, for for getting together and, and celebrating something after 30 years. It's it's fair. It's it, it's fair. Yeah, I am enamored of Jurgen Klopp. I don't know what more needs to be said about this man. It's funny because during the lockdown, we've been airing a lot of uh, Bundesliga documentaries, and uh, they've been sending me the links to all of them for me to watch and then write little blurbs, uh, descriptions that appear on people's guides and their televisions. And one of the documentaries I watched was about Dortmund's 2010-11 title-winning season, the first of two straight Bundesliga titles they won under Klopp. And the documentary was all about him and how he changed the culture of that club when he arrived and how he forged this incredible connection with the fans and the community. And it was amazing to watch that in the midst of the same thing going on at Liverpool. I mean, it's twice in a row here that this man has done this. He seems to find these these clubs that are just perfect marriages with his personality. He likes to find places where he has the resources to win, but it's not that suffocating super club culture. It's not so corporate. It still has a a club feel to it. And yeah, I, I think he is going to stay at Liverpool for, for, for several more years. And so I see no reason why they're not going to continue to be successful. Now I will say Pep grew very tired of the Mourinho rivalry because he felt like that became very toxic when he was at Barcelona and uh, Mourinho was at Real Madrid. This rivalry seems to be more respectful. So I'm hoping Pep embraces that and really sees this as a challenge to up his game and that the Pep Klopp thing, you know, remains uh, th- this fun rivalry for the next several years because I- I've enjoyed watching those two managers butt heads the last couple of years and I hope it continues. I hope neither of them leaves anytime soon because I am enjoying this back and forth. All right. So if you say that he's going to stay more years, what do you think pushes his, him on or, or gets him to leave? I mean, does he do a, a sabbatical type of thing when it comes to, uh, you know, the way that, uh, that Pep has done over the years? I don't think there's a club job out there that would prompt him to leave Liverpool. I think eventually he might want to coach Germany. That's the thing yeah. that I could see him leaving Liverpool for. And look, and I, I wouldn't put, him, put it past him to, to have success there, but... As you always have to wonder when it's a a club coach that has had success and, and you know dramatic success, if it is specific to the ability to work day in and day out. Um, and I'm not just talking about the X's and O's, but that's an important part of being able to actually implement those X's and O's. But also the management style that is different when you're in a uh, a club situation as to as opposed to international. But I, I'm I'm all for the experiment. I would love to see what Jurgen Klopp then looks like. Because I do think he's flexible. He's a smart person. And he understands that it will, it will require him to change. And in a strange way, it will challenge him in ways that he, well, if he continues on, he won't be challenged, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, and I know they've spent a fair amount of money, but even Liverpool haters would have to acknowledge they've done it very smartly. You look at the players they've signed, the, the clubs that they got them from, they, these were not players that all the other big clubs were falling over themselves to sign. They, these were not considered superstars at the time that Liverpool signed them. They've blossomed into that under club. So I think you just have to give them an immense amount of credit for how well he's built this team up. I will say, though, I thought it was poetic justice that in the very match in, in which Liverpool clinched the title, Kevin De Bruyne scored an outrageous free kick goal. Yep. Because I've, I mentioned this on the podcast before, and I'll say it again. Uh, as great as Liverpool have been, Kevin De Bruyne, in my eyes, has been the best player in the Premier League this season. And I still stand by that. I think he should win the Player of the Year award. I know there's a sentiment that it should go to a Liverpool player, but uh, again, two seasons ago, it was in reverse, where City had this incredible record-breaking season, 100 points. De Bruyne was terrific. He was their best player. And yet Salah won PFA Player of the Year that year. So we didn't apply the logic then that it, it would have to go to somebody on the best team. We just gave it to who the best player was that season, which was Mo Salah. So I think the same logic should apply in reverse here. When you look at what Kevin De Bruyne did in the 17-18 season and then what he's done here in 1920, it would be criminal if he doesn't win PFA Player of the Year in one of those seasons. So I would give it to him this season. Okay, so I guess the last question on this is, is this, is this going to be a dynasty? I mean, they've already had success and they will be remembered, but are we talking about the ability to consistently do this? Because now they got the target on their back. You know that people are going to you know, revamp, if you will, to get ready for, uh, for next season. Do you, can you see a Liverpool winning back-to-backs now? I can, yeah. Dynasty is a bit strong. I, I, have, I think that word is overused in sports. I have a pretty high uh, criteria for what I would consider a dynasty. All right, but so what's your criteria then? Well, you, for a prolonged amount of period, you would have to just completely dominate and, and, and you know, win, win. I mean, what Bayern are doing in the Bundesliga, that's, that's a dynasty. Um, okay. But I, I certainly see uh, Liverpool, uh, as, as long as Klopp's there, they're going to be one of the top teams contending for major trophies and presumably winning some of them. So I, I see this ushering in an era of, of tremendous success for Liverpool and, and more trophies are on the way for sure. Okay, well, you know, Liverpool backed into the championship or, or to the title uh, in, in a certain <laughs> way. They didn't actually win it on the, I mean, that's, that's not taking a shot at them. It's just the way that it worked out. Uh, their friends uh, down in London, uh, Chelsea, were able to win and in doing so, assure them the title, which brings us to the American. All right. There's only one player right now playing for Chelsea that, uh, that we care about. Is uh, I know that's not true. But when Christian Pulisic, we know uh, with a lot of fanfare and a tremendous amount of money came over to Chelsea. There were high hopes for him, uh, undeniable talent. Uh, but as is always the question, can he stay healthy? Can he break into a lineup? Can he be favored by Frank Lampard? And at least over the last week, uh, we are looking uh, and confirming what many people feel in that this is the best American player playing today. And that when he gets on the field, he can oftentimes be the best player for Chelsea, which says a lot about him. Uh, it was a wonderful week for, for him. Came on as a substitute against Aston Villa, scored a goal. Uh, scored a wonderful goal that anybody, including Klopp or Pep, against City, and so against Pep, uh, would, would cheer, and rightfully so. And then in the FA Cup, although he didn't score, he was without a doubt one, if not uh, the best player 
on the field and consistently dangerous and and living up to the expectations and being the Christian Pulisic where each and every time he gets the ball, whether you're an American or not, or, or whether you care that he's American or not, people are holding their breath because once again, there's that potential for something amazing to happen. He just loves to take people on. His first three steps are, are incredible. Uh, he is fearless when it comes to the attacking, uh, the attacking part. And, uh, you know, as I, as I said last week when we were talking about him, he is smart. Uh, so even in a game where he doesn't have a lot of possession, he bides his time. And then when he sees that opportunity, he pounces on it. So a, a huge week for Mr. Pulisic and, and for Chelsea, by the way. But I, we, have to, we have to tag this, right? Because when it involves Christian Pulisic, you're always worried about injuries. And unfortunately, he was taken off in the uh, 70-ish minute uh, for a calf concern, I think is what they called it. Um, hopefully, it's just a little, little thing, and it's just out of precaution, um, and that this doesn't, once again, derail him. But we've seen this before, where he gets on a little run, and then injuries bite him, and then he's back to, to, to square one. So we will monitor that and see what's going on. But un, undoubtedly, a, a, a big week. Were you impressed with uh, Mr. Pulisic? Uh, very impressed. Uh, I know people like to be different. They like to say something other than the obvious because it makes them feel smarter. But I frequently <laughs> hear U.S. fans say that somebody other than Pulisic is the player they're most excited about right now, whether it's Tyler Adams or Gio Reyna. And I would say to those U.S. fans, you might be overthinking this one. <laughs> I think he is clearly the best player in the U.S. talent pool right now. And I'm also in the camp that thinks he's the most talented player the U.S. has ever produced. Now, I know when people say that, it triggers these MLS versus Europe things in your, in your head that you know, you're very sensitive about because you assume that if somebody thinks Pulisic is more talented than Landon Donovan, it must be because they assign more value to a player doing it in Europe versus MLS. But you know, I'll just say, listen, Landon Donovan is a retired player who had a 15-year career. Pulisic is a youngster uh, with his whole career ahead of him. It remains to be seen if he'll have a better or worse career than Landon. When it's all said and done, we can hold the career side by side. All we can do is uh, with a young player, whether it's Pulisic or Sancho or Holland or Havertz, just talk about them in, in, in terms of talent and potential. And having watched Landon play throughout his whole career, having watched Pulisic regularly the last three or four years, uh, I do think he is the most talented player the U.S. has ever produced with the highest ceiling. Uh, and it remains to be seen if he'll live up to that. But I, I am in that camp of people who, who think that. Uh, what say you? So, so wait a second. So you could have a player, an American player, who showed incredible prowess and talent at a young age that got bought by Barcelona, okay? And Barcelona buys a lot of players, whatever. They, they, they took a flyer on him, stepped on the field, scored a goal for the ages, okay? Got injured after the goal, went off the field, and we never saw him again. And you, based on that moment, are going to say that he's the best player and most talented player ever to play the game? I mean, where, where do you draw the line? What's, you know, how much is enough for you to say that? Because I... I no, I don't understand that until you're actually comparing a full full career. For example, if Christian Pulisic's career, I'm not going to wood, God forbid this ever, were to stop today, you would say that Christian Pulisic is the most talented American player ever to play the game? I would say he's the most talented the U.S. ever produced, and, and, and then he would fall into that category of what could have been because of injuries, which we actually did a whole segment on players like that. Uh, weeks oh ago. My goodness. Um, oh my but I, I think, God. I think actually the more interesting way to look at it is how do you measure club versus country? Uh, 
if Pulisic does go on to have this incredible career club level, uh, but for whatever reason, it doesn't happen for him with the national team, World Cups and such, uh, could he still then go down as the greatest American player? Or no, if you're talking about it in that context, and it has to be heavily weighted towards what you did for the national team. Yeah, I mean, I, I get that it, it can be it can be unfair, but you know, you could say, you know, what if because let's you're using Landon as a position as a possibility, or Clint Dempsey, or somebody else that you would you would throw out there. What if they had played and been given the opportunities that Christian Pulisic has? What would would they have made more of it? Obviously, they're very different different players. But you know, this is this is the fun. I just think you know the most talented. I I can get my head around that. The best. You know, that's that's very, very different. Would you not agree? Yes. Okay. All right. So the the, the best remains to be seen. Certainly the potential to be, be, the, be the best. And I've said that that consistently. And look, I'm, this is not me dumping on Christian Pulisic, but the international component of it, I do think that it matters. All right. You, you do have to be fair and comparing different eras. And who knows? Christian Pulisic might not be surrounded, except look, look at the the depth of talent that Christian Pulisic is going to have around him. When we look at all of these players that are coming around, that they don't live up to that potential or they don't live up to that talent, do we then take that out on Christian Pulisic? You know, I, I don't know. I mean, if this is, if you look at the national team right now and say, well, we shouldn't, we shouldn't ask or we shouldn't compare what Christian Pulisic does with the U.S. men's national team now relative to what Landon Donovan did to the, with, with the U.S. men's national team now because the U.S. men's national team back in mid-aughts or whatever when Landon was, was flying was a, very, was a much better team. I, I don't necessarily buy that, buy that argument. I do think that he has to marry what he is doing from a club level with – he doesn't have to do everything that Landon does, but he, it has to be at least considered to be a successful international time. Whatever that means. Obviously, right now, it means qualifying for a World Cup and playing in a World Cup. That, that, at the very least, I think that that has to be something that has to be, uh, has to be taken into account. Look, this is, these are, as Tata Martino would say, these are champagne problems. All right? These are, this, is, this is wonderful that we are even having this discussion. This is wonderful that we are able to, you know, once again, for a little bit of consistency, notwithstanding his, uh, his recent injury here, not only get up and, and watch this player, but have it be confirmed now over and over again how good he is. Yeah, that's, this is, you know, this is, this is wonderful stuff. And then you yeah, add the other players that we were talking about, the players over in the Bundesliga, and who knows when this, uh, when this transfer market uh, wraps up, who knows, maybe there'll be some other players that find their way, uh, find their way to the EPL. And the, the, the specific team... Uh, and I know Alex Dowd is going to get all excited about this, the specific team that he is playing for right now in Chelsea and what Chelsea is, or what I should say Chelsea is now becoming, I, it, I think it just, it, it fits perfectly for him. If he was at a different club, it might be very, very different in terms of how we view him and how he is playing. I, and look, I, I know he's not necessarily a, a, a starter every single time in Frank Lampard's eyes. You know, he's, he's doing everything he can to, to change that. But I do think he is almost in the right and perfect situation. And it's only going to get, I guess, tougher. You know, we're talking about Kai Havertz uh, you know, potentially coming there. We know about Timo Werner and these, these, types of, uh, uh, you know, these types of players. So, I mean, I'm, I, I hope Alex isn't listening to this, but I am really excited about what Chelsea is going to be 
going going forward. I think they're going to be fun to watch, and I do think that they are going to be successful, and that Christian Pulisic is not just playing a part, but I think could play a vital part, and you see what Frank Lampard says about him and the players that he compares him to and the impact that he thinks he can have. Uh, you got to be excited. You got to be excited. All right, Mossy, anything else? Uh, well, I'll end on this. If Pulisic is healthy in three weeks' time, he'll be playing a, a big match at Wembley. The uh, FA Cup semifinals are set. I have to say, unpopular opinion. I know people think the charm of the FA Cup is upsets and Cinderella stories, but I kind of like it when it works out this way where the big boys collide at the end. Uh, so the semifinals are uh, United will face Chelsea and then Arsenal will take on Manchester City. Uh, the dates I've seen for those semis are July 18th and 19th. I'm not sure that's 100% confirmed, but that's what I've seen. Uh, and then the final would be August 1st at Wembley. So pretty star-studded FA Cup semifinal. All right, so Manchester United versus Chelsea. Okay, I am going to pick Manchester United in that one. I think that they are further along. And now with the, you know, the, the Pogba and the Bruno Fernandes and these types of players coming into their own and feeling good and being loved, although that can change. I'm going to pick them over Chelsea, despite Christian Pulisic's best efforts uh, to lead that team past Manchester United. And I'm not even going to, I mean, I'm, a, I'm not even going to consider Arsenal beating uh, <laughs> City. Would you agree with both of those picks or would you challenge me on either one? I would, unless, uh, you know, David Luiz, this would be his chance at redemption. We all remember what happened the last game he played against Manchester City. Maybe he'll rise to the occasion this time around. Did you, by, by any chance, did you watch any of the, uh, the Newcastle Man City game? I did. <laughs> uh, look, I mean, I know that we, we talk about the, um, you know, the difference between the haves and the have-nots, <laughs> but it was, it was a stark uh, and raw display of, <laughs> of the difference in, and the gap in quality when it comes to, especially when it comes to possessing the ball, all right? Uh, you know, there's one thing about parking the bus, but Newcastle was was running out of lines to pull back to. <laughs> I mean, the next line that they were going to get to was the six yard box or the, uh, uh, the goal line, the goal line there. There was so, they were so far back that even if they did get a touch on the ball, they were so tired from having defended and they had no outlet up top. And it, it must be incredibly frustrating for, for those players. It was, it was not even a contest. And, and I know the score didn't reflect a complete domination but it was a complete domination in the way that it, and it was graphically illustrated in, in what you were watching uh the disparity between the two anything else mossy that's it all right uh we got plenty more to talk about we're going to take a real quick break here and then we'll be right back so moving on Hello, people. Alexi here with a quick word from Theragun. You know, the stress of daily life weighs on all of us. Whether you're an elite athlete or just a regular person trying to get through the day, muscle pain and muscle tension is a real thing. That's why there's Theragun, the handheld percussive therapy device that releases your deepest muscle tension using a scientifically calibrated combination of depth, speed, and power. And now, it's as quiet as an electric toothbrush. That's because the all new Gen 4 Theragun has a proprietary brushless motor that's so quiet, you'll wonder if it's on while you soothe your aching muscles with Theragun's signature power, amplitude, and effectiveness. Try Theragun risk-free for 30 days. There's no substitute for the Theragun Gen 4 with an OLED screen, personalized Theragun app, and the quiet and power you need starting at only $199. 
Go to theragun.com slash cadence right now and get your Gen 4 Theragun today. That's theragun.com slash cadence. Theragun.com slash cadence. Now, back to the show. Okay, we're back and uh, we're going to kick it into some La Liga talk. Uh, And when you're talking about La Liga, I mean, there's only two that you go to first, right? And we're going to go to Barcelona. All right, Barcelona, Mossy, making some moves. There was a lot of talk about how this year, let's talk about the year of 2020, was going to impact the business of soccer, especially the what was once booming business of player transfers, and if it was going to dampen it, if it was going to actually ignite it even more as people see the potential to do some deals and get some bargains out there. But it looks like Barcelona are doing some different things. Now, why they are doing those things will be something that we will discuss. So tell the people what uh, the good folks over there in Barcelona are doing. Well, they're putting the finishing touches on this uh, deal, which would send Artur, young Brazilian midfielder, to Juventus, uh, with Miralem Pjanic going the other direction to Barcelona. Now, there's there's very much, as you mentioned, an economic uh, reason for this. Even though it is essentially a swap, it is being treated as two separate deals. Juventus are buying Artur for 80 million euros, while Barcelona are buying Pjanic for 70 million euros. Uh, and you say, why are they doing it that way? Because the way the accounting works at these clubs, money that you spend on a signing, you can spread that out over several years, while money that you bring in on a sale, you can report that in one lump sum right away. And so this has obviously been a very difficult uh, year for all these clubs because of the, the coronavirus. And so it helps Barcelona's bottom line for the 1920 economic period uh, to be able to report this sale of our tour and, and bring in all that money. So from an economic standpoint, that's the thinking behind that. Uh, now I have, as you might imagine, this being a Brazilian international, I have all sorts of thoughts on the footballing logic behind this decision. But let, let me just provide a little bit of a larger context here on what's going on with Barcelona right now. We're taping this on a Monday. They do play Atletico Madrid tomorrow, and they could go out and, and win that game 4-0, and then everything I'm about to say is out the window. But as of taping, they are in something of a full-blown crisis because – over the weekend, they drew 2-2 away to Celta Vigo. They, they surrendered a late equalizer to Iago Aspas while Real Madrid won their game against Espanyol. So Real Madrid have a two-point lead now. Uh, they have the head-to-head tiebreaker. And it, this thing just seems to be trending towards Real Madrid uh, winning the title. That Barcelona game, there was an incredible piece of video. During one of the cooling breaks, one of the assistants went over to Messi to try to pass along some sort of instruction and Messi just completely ignored the guy and walked away when he was in the middle of talking to him. Then Luis Suarez took a a little veiled shot at Kike Setien uh, in the post-game interview. And then we've heard reports of uh, of locker room bust-up between the coaching staff and the players afterwards. So there's already all this turmoil surrounding Kike Setien, who was brought in not too long ago to replace Ernesto Valverde. And it's just interesting to me. I read read a, a... Interesting article in the Gazeta dello Sport about Maurizio Sarri and Juventus, which it kind of relates to the Setien situation in Barcelona. It talked about this paradox that Maurizio Sarri was brought into Juventus. Supposedly, it was less an emphasis on results and more an emphasis on the style of play. Juventus, they're, they're sort of jealous that they're perceived as being defensive and pragmatic, and they want to develop a sexier brand the way Real Madrid and Barcelona do, and they thought bringing in a manager like Sadi would accomplish that, and he's failed completely at that. And, and so now 
what what's what's going to save him is perhaps results. The fact that they're they're still in the Champions League, they're fighting for a Serie A title. And so the, the Gazette de la Sport article was talking about the the irony that Sadi now is is kind of become beholden to his results. While you know the reason they brought him in was something completely different. And Setien is like that too. He has no trophy winning pedigree. When they brought him in, the whole justification was that he's going to get us back to playing the Barcelona way. That's gone out the window. And now they're just hoping that they can eke out enough results to perhaps pip Real Madrid for this La Liga title or do something in the Champions League. And, and, and so it, it's, I've, I'm reading articles today that he's going to get sacked unless he wins La Liga or the Champions League, which is like, wait a minute. I thought the whole reasoning for bringing in this guy, it had nothing to do with results. It was about he was going to get you back to playing a certain style of play. So it's amazing how it's all played out. <laughs> oh, soccer. Oh, goodness. Okay. Uh, when it comes down to the actual players involved in this particular deal, uh, is, it, is it safe to say that our tour has been not on the outs, but has not progressed or evolved in the way that they thought he was going to be. And that's what makes this less painful, if there is any pain. Yeah, look, I've read all the articles this week, all the analytics pointing out how sterile his passing is. And and I get that. I will say, though, um, having watched him closely the last two years, amidst all the sideways passes, you do see the occasional brilliant through ball passes that very few players in the world can make. So he has it in him. Uh, To make an American football analogy, there are quarterbacks who don't throw the ball down the field because they don't have the arm strength. And then there are quarterbacks who have the arm strength to make any throw they want, but they've just been coached to play it safe and to, to throw more underneath passes. And I think our tour is more the latter, but I guess they've just decided uh, they can't draw it out of him. It just his nature is, is to be a guy that, that plays it sideways and backwards, and they need more vert- verticality from that position. So, okay, fine. I was initially very disappointed uh, that he's going to be leaving Barcelona. But I, I will say, leave it to Tostão, who's this legendary former Brazilian player who's now the most respected analyst in Brazil, to make me feel better about it. Uh, he wrote a column about it this week, and he said, you know what? Artur is better off at a club like Juventus because at Barcelona, he's chasing a ghost in Xavi. And I, I've actually thought a lot about this the last couple of days. Barcelona, they're trying to recreate something that's not recreatable. And it seems like every player they sign out, when they brought in Coutinho, it was framed as he's the successor to Iniesta, which never made any sense if you understood what type of player Coutinho is. Uh, Artur was supposed to be the next Xavi. Uh, De Jong has been billed as the next Busquets. And so, you know, they, they, they view these players through that lens and it puts this undue pressure on them. They're also, they've been trying to recreate that, that rem- remarkable front three they had that, the last time they won the Champions League in 2015, that MSN with Messi, Suarez, and Neymar. And say what you want about Neymar, but he's left a hole that has not been filled yet. They've spent a combined 400 million euros on Usman Dembele, Coutinho, who they eventually abandoned the notion of him being a midfielder and played him as part of that front three. And now Antoine Griezmann, none of them have panned out. Griezmann is, right now is just an absolute disaster. He hasn't scored in five games since coming back. And so... Uh, I just think it's 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 all with Barcelona. It's all seems to be about trying to cling to something uh, that from their recent past, trying to recreate something that's not recreatable, trying to find a player that's sort of a doppelganger for, you know, a, a member of that sort of <laughs> golden age team they had in, under Pep. And it, it's just, I, I don't know. They've, they've just- Hold they've, on, <laughs> hold on, hold on, hold on. All right. And and I know your father listens to this show and I I, I hope that your father will back me up on this. Did I just hear you, well, maybe not say explicitly, but infer that the club called Barcelona, this, this pillar, all right, this, uh, this castle on the hill 
this club that for so many years we have looked to, to give us the romance uh, and the emotion and the passion and the beauty that is the beautiful game. Did I just hear you, the, the Barcelona that's messed down club, okay? Did I just hear you say that they're trying to recreate something that was in the past that's impossible to recreate? If you can't recreate it, then is it even a philosophy? Is it even an ethos? Is it who you are? If it's just contingent on having a great generation of once in a lifetime type of players all being there at the same time, then what the hell are we talking about here, Mossy? I mean, and, and, then, and then you talk, and you talked about Artur, you talk about irony in the way that you describe him, it's as if he's playing for Jose Mourinho or something on, on a club of Jose's where he is being stifled and he is being held back from actually doing the things, but he's playing for what arguably is one of the most, at least perceived, creative clubs in the world. I don't understand that. And, and please correct me if I'm wrong. I don't want to put words in your mouth and I don't want to uh, have people out there think something that, uh, uh, that is not true. Where have, I, where have I missed it in terms of, of framing this? Well, so, so the point that this, this guy Tostone was making is that at a club like Juventus, they're, they'll look at a player like Artur and they'll, they'll appreciate his good qualities. They'll, they'll appreciate what he is rather than focusing on what he's not. He's not going to be judged through this lens of this guy needs to be the next Xavi and the guy that's going to help us recapture this, this uh, incredible football that we played under Pep years ago. It's, it's just more realistic expectations and looking at him in a more sort of practical manner than looking at it through this lens that it seems like every Barcelona midfielder they sign now is looked at as the guy that's going to help them revive. Right. I, don't want, I don't want to hear anything more about Barcelona's style of play and philosophy and it's Mestun club and La Masia and all this other BS when it comes to doing it because that's that's what when and, and I'm not just talking about Barcelona everybody around is trying to quote establish an identity this is who we want to be this is how we want to play these are the types of players that we want and this is this is what we are giving to our customers this is this is our product and if it's just about getting good players then that's that's not a philosophy that's that's not a style of play that's business so maybe Barcelona just needs to do uh, needs to do better business. But it was interesting though, uh, during the Espanol Real Madrid game, uh, being they do this thing where during breaks in the action, they answer Twitter questions, uh, yeah. which by the way is a total ripoff of Ask Alexi. But nevertheless, <laughs> uh, one of the questions was Do you think Real Madrid are set up to dominate La Liga for the next decade? Which I think is overstating it. I know I've talked on this podcast before about all this young talent that Real Madrid have that are either in the squad now or, or loaned out. And so uh, people have sort of projected ahead what this lineup could look like two or three years from now. And I'm talking about Vinicius and Rodrigo and Valverde and Odegaard. Now, interestingly, one of the guys that would always be thrown in there is Hakimi and he's been sold to Inter. So forget about him. And they also plop Mbappe in there because everybody assumes that Mbappe is going to eventually end up at Real Madrid. And I just think that sort of presumes that all these guys are going to pan out. All these young players are going to be given enough time to develop and it's going to all work out neatly and perfectly. And, 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 and it, things don't usually go that way, particularly at Real Madrid when you have the impulsive Florentino Perez. And so I'm not ready to say that Real Madrid are going to dominate La Liga for the next decade, but I will say it is undeniable that they do have more talented, intriguing young players than, than Barcelona do right now. So that is something they can hang their hat on. 
so yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out in the coming years. You know, Messi, they, they, they Barcelona, they don't want to waste any years under Messi. So that there's this ultra sort of win now mode. And even this Artur Pjanic deal, you're swapping a 23 year old for a 30 year old, which the fans don't like, but it just speaks to this, this pressure to, to make the most out of Messi's last few years here. While Real Madrid, you know, Ronaldo left, they've already kind of started to take one eye towards a long-term future and signing some of these players they have. So it, it is a little bit of a difference in philosophy there. So it'd be interesting to see how it all plays out. All right. Well, let's leave uh, Barcelona. We got a couple more things here as we fly around the uh, the globe. Uh, we mentioned at the top of the show the return of NWSL on Big CBS. It was uh, North Carolina versus uh, versus Portland. We've talked a lot over the last couple of months about as these leagues have come on online about the production and the production decisions. Uh, I thought that actually CBS did a very good job. It is the first. It's sometimes difficult. It's in that. Uh, that bubble environment in Utah where I guess eight of the nine NWSL teams are there because of the, the, the problems that Orlando had. So I, I you know, I've, given, I've been giving grades out over the last few weeks. I would give them a solid B. Um, yeah, does it look different than Bundesliga? Yeah, but it was always going to given the, uh, the bubble type of environment that they are, uh, that they are playing in over in Utah. I think that you know, the, the enhanced audio, which we always talk about, I think they did a relatively good job and this is going to change and this is going to be tweaked as they, as they go forward, just like all the leagues. Cause they're, uh, cause they're learning. Uh, I thought that, you know, Allie Wagner and Jen Hildreth and uh, Marissa Pila, the, uh, the on-air talent did a good job. It was a little, it was a little weird in the, uh, the on-field interviews. Now we, we, we know we have to have the distance. And so there's the long boom mic type of uh, type of thing, but you know, we'll, we'll all get used to that. And those are, those are little things, but all in all, it was, you know, the game on the field was, uh, was fun uh, and it was exciting. It was competitive, uh, obviously, in, uh, in terms of what went on. And then off the field, like I said, you know, it was, uh, it was, a, it was a solid B type of production. And, you know, and, uh, the uh, North Carolina Courage, congratulations on being, uh, being the winners. Uh, you might want to if, you are, uh, if you're Portland. Uh, Mark Lynn Williams, when she's in the box, she scored the winner, uh, ball into the box, scored the winner. And, uh, you know, she's, she's deadly if you're going to just leave her uh, unmarked. Uh, and the games will continue. And, and the, the compare and contrast will continue, especially when MLS comes online here in a, well, you know, a week and, week and a half, uh, a little less than a week and a half. So uh, we'll be looking forward uh, to that. I did enjoy it. And I did take great glee and pride in that it was that it was happening and it made me it made me feel good to see it being being played uh from a sports perspective just in general but also uh, in particular because it was soccer that was uh that was coming back on uh online mossy anything uh, nwsl you want to hit upon before we move on here uh no but staying with uh women's soccer oh yes uh, major announcement this past week uh it will be australia uh, slash New Zealand, a, a, a joint bid that will host the 2023 uh, Women's World Cup. They beat out Colombia. Keep in mind, this will be the first Women's World Cup with uh, 32 teams. It's the first uh, Women's World Cup to have co-hosts. The United States will look to become the first country, uh, men's or women's, to win three straight World Cup titles. The bid is uh, it's 12 cities, seven in Australia, five in New Zealand, 13 stadiums in all because there's two in Sydney. I suspect Sydney will host the final. I'm, I'm not sure about that. 
But this was interesting. I don't know what your reaction was, but Australia and New Zealand was clearly the safe choice. Yep. And it's a quick turnaround. They only have three years now to get ready for this. Keep in mind, Qatar, for example, was given 12 years. And I actually think if there had been more time, they might have gone with Colombia because FIFA, they they like to use World Cups to kind of in underdeveloped areas to kind of use it to spur on investment and improve the stadiums and the infrastructure. And so the fact that Colombia is actually in worse shape than Australia might have actually been a positive a feather in their cap here. But I think because it's so little time here, uh, in this case, they decided, let's go with the safe choice, the, the country that's definitely going to be ready to host it. Uh, and so it's funny because it was, it was at one point that FIFA said as many as 10 countries were interested in hosting this. And then for a while, it got down to four bids. It was Brazil, Japan, Colombia, and the Australia, New Zealand, and then and then Brazil eventually dropped out, and and then Japan dropped out right on the eve of the voting. So it left just Australia, New Zealand against Colombia. And listen, who the heck knows where any of us are going to be in three years? But having covered the last two women's World Cups on site, which meant six weeks in Vancouver in yep. 2015, six weeks in Paris, I couldn't help but look at this through the lens of like, where do I want to spend six weeks in the summer of 2023? <laughs> And I'm pretty happy with how it went. I've never been to Australia to play. It's always been at the top of my list of places I'd love to visit. So I'd very much love it if we covered this tournament on site and I got to go to Australia. Yes, yes. Uh, we should both be so lucky. Uh, both <laughs> places. I've been to both places. They're wonderful. I actually worked the Olympics back in 2000 in Australia, right, based right there in Sydney. I ran through the, uh, the botanical gardens right there every single morning. Had a wonderful, wonderful time. You know, uh, Australia and New Zealand, like the United States, um, yes, they will do some things, but for the most part, it's it's turnkey, as you mentioned. So that that that's why they hit when it came to the assessment, the official assessment. I mean, they got very very high marks relative to Colombia. But as you mentioned, look, it's easy to take shots at, at FIFA, and they they make it easy oftentimes. But at its core, FIFA's mandate is to spread the game and to spread that gospel. And so, you know, while while we can argue about something like Qatar. What we can't argue about is that everybody deserves the game from a FIFA perspective, okay? Everybody deserves to have the opportunity to use, like you say, a World Cup as a platform, all right? And especially when it comes to the women's game in a place like uh, South America and in a place like Colombia, the impact that it may have could be felt for, for years. And we all know the, the usual suspects when it comes to women's soccer that put the resources and have put the resources into the, into the game and continue to put more and, and need to put more. But someplace like Colombia, I mean, you could fundamentally change the game, not just in that, in that country, but in that area, the way they look at women's soccer, the resources that are put into soccer. So you're, you're absolutely right. I just think that with the three-year run-up, and with what Australia and New Zealand are, it, it came to a point. And look, this was, this was voted. So there was back and forth and there was politics involved and not just politics from women's soccer, but politics from future World Cups and all, all different things that were going on. Uh, I, I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a, a fun World Cup for everybody involved. The time zone thing will be interesting to see from an American perspective because for Women's World Cup, obviously the biggest market is the United States. And... We've seen previous World Cups where times have been adjusted to try to accommodate it. The Columbia 
uh, World if it was if a Columbia Women's World Cup would actually have been better from a time zone perspective for our viewing pleasure uh, of a World Cup. But we'll see if FIFA looks to adjust the kickoff times. I remember back in 1994, even we played a game at 11 something. We kicked off at like 11:20 a.m. East Coast time in uh, uh, in the Pontiac Silverdome back then to accommodate the viewership back in. Uh, in, in Europe and other things have been done. So we'll see how, uh, how that goes. But congratulations to the, the co-hosts. This is becoming more and more of a thing when it comes to multiple, multiple countries hosting big tournaments. We've seen it with Euros and, uh, and World Cups and we will see it in a, in a few years when it comes to the Men's World Cup here with the United States, Canada and Mexico. All right, Masi, anything else from this segment? No, that's it. All right, moving on. Ask Alexi. Okay, we're back and it's time for Ask Alexi. Use that hashtag Ask Alexi out there and you ask us questions, send us comments, concerns out there on the old social media platforms, all the different ones that are out there. We scour them for anything that's interesting and, and maybe something that we uh, want to talk about. What do the people want to know this week, Mossy? First up, at Mike Botch 9 uh, with the trouble within reach for Bayern and if they win it all, does Lewandowski have a shot at the Ballon d'Or? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely, he does. Uh, even, bef- even before, even before, um, you know, back in I don't know what we're calling it normal times. Uh, there was still a a talk about how not underrated. Everybody knows who he is, but he just has had such a, a longevity and a consistency that, in an es- in essence, taking him for granted. I do think that even if they don't win the treble, I think that he will be in line for it, and rightfully so, especially in a year where, you know, have, have the usual suspects done things that, that are worthy? Well, they're always going to be on or about, and, you know, Messi continues to score goals and, and do those things, so he, he will be there. But I absolutely would have no problem voting for Robert Lewandowski when it comes to the Blondor, even if they don't win. But, yes, it'll just kind of firm up how important he is, how important he was, and will almost in a strange way justify those, those votes. But I don't think you need justification in terms of them winning, but just a massive, massive player. And I do think that at times he is not undervalued, but underappreciated. And some of it's just timing of living in the time of Messi and Ronaldo. I agree with you. I think this could be the year for him. And, and I do think we talked uh, last week about whether the Bundesliga finishing up so early could be a, a detriment to Bayern. Uh, but having thought about it a little bit more, I do think they benefit from that tie with Chelsea not being over. Uh, had they played those two legs already, it would have been an incredibly awkward gap. But as it is, they're going to play the, the German Cup final against Leverkusen July 4th. And then they are going to have that second leg against Chelsea on August 7th or 8th. And remember, they won 3-0 at, at Stamford Bridge. So the tie is effectively over. They can use that second leg against Chelsea to kind of shake off the rust uh, before they have to go to Lisbon to play in the quarterfinal. Uh, Leipzig don't have that luxury, by the way. So, And they don't even have the German Cup final. So the gap for them is going to be absolutely ridiculous from their last Bundesliga game to then taking the field for a Champions League quarterfinal in mid-August in Lisbon because they already disposed of Tottenham, already played both legs in their round of 16 tie. And I, you know what? That might have been part of the thinking of Timo Werner that, that because he has already determined he is not going to play the Champions League for Leipzig. He wants to 
hit the ground running with Chelsea. So he's going to go already to Chelsea. What do you and think he, of that decision, Mossy? What do you I think don't like it at all. You know, listen, he's probably th- thinks it's mission impossible with Leipzig anyway, because they, they would have gone a month and a half without playing a competitive match. And, and like I said, he wants to hit the ground running with his new club, but still this rubs me the wrong way. I mean, it, it look, we're all dealing with this awkward situation now where the, the, the schedule got distorted and one season is going to bump right up against the start of another one. And there are some situations that bother me less than others. Cavani's not going to play the Champions League for PSG. And I get that. He had a very strained relationship with PSG this past season. He wanted to leave in January. They forced him to stay. So, okay, I get that one a little bit more. But Timo Werner, Leipzig have been very good to him. They've treated him well. He's the star player of that team. And, you know, I'm sorry, go to Lisbon, go play the, the Champions League. But, uh, but do you think it's coming from him or do you think it's coming from the team that that is buying him? I'm sure Chelsea are happy with this outcome. But I mean, if he had put his foot down and said, I want to play, do you think it would have affected the deal? I think Chelsea would have still gone through with it. And then he breaks his leg and then what? Well, I mean, listen, it, it's, it's a risk. That- I mean, we, we've seen players sit out games because there's a, a, an impending deal on the table. And... It's, you know, it's not because the players necessarily don't want to play. It's because you know, if I'm going to spend a boatload of money, I'm going to hedge my bets. And I don't, any opportunity that you have to get on the field for somebody else, by the way, is a potential injury there. So I, I, mean, I'm, I totally get what you're saying. And certainly if you have the leverage and the power to do something like that, you could probably force that through. I'm, although I don't know if you want to start out a new relationship with a, with a new club. Uh, leveraging something like that and demanding it. Although maybe in a certain way it justifies and confirms why they're actually buying him because you are a person of honor and ultimately you want to compete and you want to give the, the people what they want. Incidentally, to tie it back to the conversation we just had, both Artur and Pjanic are going to stay with their respective clubs through the end of the season, both Barcelona and Juventus uh, still in the Champions League. And it, Barcelona have a, a crunch second leg against Napoli. It was 1-1 in Italy. And they have all sorts of uh, problems with injuries and suspensions in the midfield. So there's a very good chance Artur will start that game. They're <laughs> like a season-defining game, a guy that they, they've been actively trying to get rid of, who Setien was, was criticizing in press conferences, but he's actually going to have to turn to him probably in that game. So this, this whole, to be fair to Werner and everybody, this is just such an awkward situation for everybody. So some, yeah. some people are going to handle yeah. it some way, others a different way, but it, we have to acknowledge it is <laughs> definitely not ideal. Um, All right. What else, Mossy, out there? Well, I mean, the, uh... I, do we want to? Uh, I, I do want to use this question as a jumping off point to tie a bow on the Bundesliga uh, okay. season, which came to an end this past weekend. So, listen, the final gap it ended up being Bayern 13 points clear of Dortmund and 16 points clear of Leipzig, which uh, I know there's a narrative out there that this is just ho hum. What's what's the big deal? Of course, the, the, the Bayern always does this, but. I mean, people need to remember at the start of the season, this was not the vibe at all. Last season, Dortmund topped the table for much of the campaign. They had a nine-point lead over Bayern at one point. Bayern ended up pipping them for the title, but it came down to the very last round. And the general consensus was that Dortmund more or less blew it, that they should have won the title last season. And then in the summer, I actually liked Dortmund's transfer business better. It felt like Bayern were treating this as something of a transition season. It started out that way. They 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 started out poorly. They sacked Niko Kovac after a 5-1 defeat to Frankfurt. Hansi Flick takes over. And even after Hansi Flick took over and they already had Alfonso Davies starting at left back and Thomas Muller reinserted into the lineup, they, they lost back-to-back Bundesliga games to Leverkusen at Gladbach, which left them at one point in early December in seventh place, seven points out of the top. 
And, you know, if you had told me then that this was going to happen, they, 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 they then went on to collect 58 of a possible 60 points since then and just coasted to the title. So I was not expecting this. From a neutral standpoint, this is not good. This is a step back for the Bundesliga. Last season, like I said, when we had that title race until the end, I thought we had turned the corner on this whole period of Bayern dominance. And this just feels like a step back the other way, which is, again, triggering all these conversations about, is this good for the game? Gab Marcotti wrote a lengthy piece about it, which I thought was excellent. He talked about how Bundesliga revenues have doubled during this period of Bayern dominance and the attendance is still very high. You know, we, we cover every Bundesliga game is yep. packed. So he said, if, if the fans don't seem to mind and the owners don't mind, because from a business perspective, it's not hurting the bottom line, then there's no real impetus to change anything. So he, he suspects things are going to stay the same way. They're not going to be any structural changes to address. But, but you seem to mind. So if you seem to mind, what's what, what's the solution? Salary caps? Yeah, I don't. Uh, I more just restrictions. Think, I just think the two clubs that we look at as as being plausible challengers uh, to Bayern Dortmund and Leipzig, they have to cultivate an identity more as destination clubs, um, mm-hmm. and and try to hold on to their players. Leipzig, they talked a big game when they burst on the scene that they were going to try to compete with Bayern, but they sold Naby Keita to Liverpool. Now they're selling Timo Werner to Chelsea. They're operating in a very Dortmund-y kind of way. Dortmund, uh, Pulisic left last summer. Sancho's probably going to leave this summer. We all think Erlen Holland is not long for that club. Probably in the next year or two, he'll go off somewhere. So operating like that, it's just going to be incredibly difficult. They, they, I, that somehow they have to be able to convince players to stay there for the long haul and, and, and change that, the, the business model. I know it's very difficult. But do you believe, other than how much more you would enjoy if there was a continued uh, and, and consistent type of competitor to Bayern Munich, do you believe that the enjoyment of the league in general would increase if that happened? Yeah, I do. But again, as Marcotti pointed out, it, it's the, the, the bottom line doesn't reflect that, you know, like to, to, it would be great for my argument if some of these clubs where the fans know from the start of the season, they're not going to win anything. Attendance was way down and, and, and there was no. a depressing feeling, which, you know, I, I guess it speaks to a different culture in American sports and, and European soccer, because, you know, we talk about how the, the, the emphasis on parity here, and mm-hmm. it, it's largely because of that, because people understand that in leagues like the NBA and the NFL and MLB, if, if your team is bad and hopeless, the fans aren't going to go to the games. And it's, you know, it's <laughs> And, and for, for whatever reason, in Europe, there's this culture where, you know, we watch these teams that haven't won a trophy in a hundred years and still every game is packed and everybody loves it. And so it just, it makes it harder to <laughs> make a case that there's something fundamentally wrong here, but yeah, but we won't know unless it actually happens and, and who knows, maybe, you know, once it does happen, if it, if it happens, the, it'll, it'll be that much exponentially that much bigger and that much more, more exciting because even, you know, when that criticism has been levied against La Liga, at least there's, at least there's two teams and consistently two teams that, you know, are going to fight it out uh, until the end. And we just, we haven't had that, like you said. I know in, in, in speaking to Keith Costigan about this, he is not a Lucien Favre fan. So he feels like there's a spot where Dortmund could potentially upgrade and maybe go out and get a better manager. Derek Ray disagrees with Keith and is something of a Lucien Favre defender and says they finished second to Bayern the last couple of years. They got to the knockout stages of the Champions League. They played good football. Like, what's the problem? He's doing about as well as can be expected at that club. Well, Keith feels like, there's just the, the the whole doesn't add up to the 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 sum of the parts, you know. That there's just there's something missing there, and yeah, I, I tend to side with Keith on that. Now, listen, last season the title was there for the taking, and Dortmund blew it. They displayed incredible mental fragility. The second half of the season had a string of inexcusable results. This season, 
you can make a pro Farva argument in that when, when Bayern were going on this incredible run of collecting 50 out of 60 points for the most part during that period, Dortmund were churning out the points as well and doing what they had to do. It was just Bayern were absolutely unstoppable. You know, with those of us that I picked Dortmund at the beginning of the season, Keith picked Leipzig. It was based on the presumption that Bayern were going to be vulnerable again. And instead they turned into this vintage Bayern team that we all think might be the best team in Europe. And so you could argue that when Bayern are firing on all cylinders and you can't expect Dortmund to keep up with them. And it was only Dortmund have had a couple of terrible results here at the end, but Farva could plausibly argue it was only after Bayern clinched the title and my players kind of switched off because we were locked into second and it didn't mean anything. That being said, I, I still side with Keith. There's just something missing there. I don't know. And if, if, if Dortmund were a really cutthroat club, I feel sometimes like I want them to win more than they want to win. And if they were a really cutthroat <laughs> club that I think they'd be at least pondering the possibility of trying to get a better manager. Instead, they've already announced Farver's coming back. So they, they clearly come down on Derek Ray's side that, yeah, for what we're aspiring to do as a club, this is fine. You know, he's doing, he's doing okay. Let's, so I don't know. Wow. So you heard it here first. David Mossy uh, wants to win more than Dortmund actually wants to win. Uh, that's, uh, that's pretty amazing. I'll, 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 we'll leave it with this because, you know, oftentimes I'm accused of being, uh, you know, too pragmatic or, or unromantic when it comes to this. Uh, the, the success of the business side of, of a club, you know, I can look at it and I can appreciate it and I can value it, but I don't expect fans or supporters to do the same thing or to care about that. So this machine that is Dortmund and this philosophy that they have employed, while it does make good good sense. And like you said, for the most part, people have come to terms with it. There's, there's almost a need for supporters and fans to be irrational uh, when it comes to the way that they look at things. So while it may make sense from a business perspective, supporters and fans aren't supposed to care about that. Find a way for us to compete with Bayern, Bayern Munich. But you know, as you said, they seem to have, maybe they just resolved to the fact that it's not going to happen and therefore they don't want to waste their time and energy and resources De demanding that or they're actually I mean, maybe the, the not so dirty little secret is that they're they're okay with it they're okay being second but you know who's not okay with being second David Mossy as he made as he made very very clear right now Mossy wants to be number one and he wants to be involved and around people that also want to be number one I love it I love it Mossy uh, all right next uh, next question here at Cesar Mania 1987 would you like Mario Balotelli in MLS okay and this is uh, all right all right there we go and then I'm going to go back to the, the business part of it. If the business was right, if the deal was right, yeah. And, you know, maybe I'm, I, I'm just, um, I'm excited of the chaos that would ensue. I'm excited of the, the circus that would, that oftentimes follows him. I don't think that he would be and have the impact that someone say like a, uh, a Zlatan had, or even a, a Drogba had in, in that, immediate and important type of impact. And as I've said before, I don't think you hire him with the belief that he is going to impart any type of information or guidance or leadership uh, off the field or on the field for that matter, when it comes to the other players, be them experienced young, young or old. So that's a long way of saying to Cesar Mania right there that, yeah, yeah, I would. And I would be definitely kicking the tires on a, a deal that involve Mario, but it, it has to make financial sense. This isn't a, a Zlatan type of uh, type of type of deal. All right. What else, Mossy? What do you, we got a yes or no on that? Or do you care? Uh, yes, I would like to see Balotelli in MLS. 
Okay. Um, and we'll end on this. This question comes via Reddit. It's a guy named Mad Laughter who posted something on Reddit and he wanted you to comment on it. He says, Alexi, please read this and discuss on your next pod when you inevitably touch on the topic of CONCACAF World Cup qualifying format changes being rumored at the moment. Then he ends his message by saying, love you and your pod. And shout out to Mossy, who is my favorite podcast co-host. Wow. Uh, so make of that what you will, Mad Laughter. Uh, well, so the AKA the, Mr. Mossy. Senior. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I mean, the, the larger. So what's he talking about here, Mossy? What's he talking about? Well, the larger context here is actually uh, there was news on this this past week. FIFA revealed a revised international calendar, and they've canceled the September international dates in every region other than Europe or South America. However, they've extended the June 21 international break so that teams can play four games during that break. They've also pushed back the intercontinental playoff from March 22 to June 22, which, you know, it's kind of funny. There was all this hand-wringing over the uh, 2022 World Cup being played in November, December, rather than the summer. Actually, the way things played out, it turned out to be a good thing. It gives you a yep. little bit more breathing room there. But so in, in lieu of this, CONCACAF, they're not even hedging anymore. They're saying the hex is done. We're going to have to come up with a, a different format. That's I think they want to come up with something that's simpler, that's fewer games, involves less travel. And so Mad Laughter decided to propose a format. And his idea is essentially you take the eight top teams in CONCACAF based on the FIFA rankings, divide them into two groups of four. You play home and away against the teams in your group. And then the top two in each group uh, advance. You then have home and away semifinal ties. The winners of those qualify for the World Cup. And then... The third place becomes a home and away tie as well. The winner of that qualifies for the World Cup because remember, it's three automatic spots and then one that goes to the intercontinental playoff. So uh, I'm not sure he explained exactly what he would do with that other half spot because he's got it. You got to have a team then right. uh, to go represent uh, CONCACAF in the intercontinental playoff. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I should have read it more carefully. He, he probably did explain that, but um, it's right. okay. But, he's, he's but you get the basic point. So, yeah. uh, so I mean, what are your overall thoughts on this whole situation? Well, well so you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, you, you, you keep your options op open. And I think CONCACAF did for as long as it was humanly possible. And then it just came time to say, look, wrap your heads around it that the hex is, is going to go away. And by the way, there was even talk even before 2020 of the potential of the hex to, uh, do you have something to say, Mossy? Are you, are you are you seeing something here that you need to, to get in? He does include a line that says, then the, the fourth place team, presumably the, the loser of the third place uh, tie would then be in that mix for the intercontinental playoff. So so mad laughter, very thorough. He, he Very thorough. Much too thorough for for either of us or this or this podcast, but you can certainly go, uh, go check it out. And so I'm going to talk much more in, in generalities here in that, you know, the, the hex going away, um, and this might be another one of those things where we throw something on the wall and it, it in totality or a part of it actually sticks beyond the, the interesting times that we are, uh, that we are uh, adjusting to. And so it's about the number of games, okay? The only priority right now from a CONCACAF perspective, uh, and you know, because they have Gold Cup type of things, they have Nations League, they have you know other tournaments and dates. But the priority, because keep in mind, uh, Concacaf teams in the hex scenario were to have played six of the ten games by the end of this year. I think even with the remaining dates that that we have, I'll be interested to see whether there are any qualifying 
uh, games for the World Cup, which is why that extra six months does work to our advantage. You could have anticipated it. You couldn't have anticipated it, but it's going to be to our advantage to have that because everything is pushed back six months. You know, what they're talking about, and it might be a little bit different than what he is suggesting, is still a group type of situation. Because in his group situation, you're still talking about, what, six group games, seven, eight, nine, ten, so set ten dates? Is that what, I mean, he's, he's basically suggesting there? Yeah. The more dates, the more problematic it becomes. That's my issue with his proposal. It still ends up being like a comparable amount of games when the whole point here is we're trying to come up with something simpler. And, and, yeah. and, and it's, it's, it's not going to be fair. Somebody ultimately at the end when those three, potentially four CONCACAF teams are decided, somebody's going to be angry, okay? Either, with it, either outside the federation with regards to that three and a half spot or with inside the confederation of CONCACAF that didn't get what they thought they were getting initially when it was the HEX and then everybody else playing for the opportunity to play that fourth place team in the HEX to then get the opportunity to play whether, whether it was Oceania or, uh, or South America. You know, all this is to say that there might be a situation where, whether it's Greg Berhalter or any other coach of a CONCACAF team, that the first time they step on the field in 2020, and I say if, they, I should say if they step on the field in 2020, because it's still a big if, it might be for a qualifying game for the World Cup. When it comes to Greg Berhalter and the the new version, it's not going to be called the Hex anymore. It might be a situation where it is a group and it's a group of three or it's a group of four. And you got to figure out a way to be the top of that group in order to qualify automatically. In, in a strange way, it makes it riskier because you, there's much less room for error, but it also guards against a U.S.-Mexico home and away type of game that is going to dictate, and that's six points on the table right there, that could, could potentially uh, derail you. I think when all is said and done, it will actually be an easier road for the U.S. to get to this next World Cup than had the traditional hex been in place. Yeah, the, the, uh, and you mentioned this earlier. The, the format I've heard suggested would be take the 12 top teams in CONCACAF, divide them into three groups of four teams each. You play home and away against teams from your group, and then the, win- the winners of the three groups qualify automatically for the World Cup, and then you take the second-place teams from each of those groups. And then CONCACAF teams 13 through 35 are going to play in some sort of tournament yep. that will spit out a team there. And then you, you pair that team up with the three second place finishers. And that creates a little four team tournament to determine who goes to the uh, intercontinental playoff, which even as I describe it, it's sounding more convoluted. games it's and this more is games the and more dates. simple. <laughs> I, the only thing I'll say, my last comment on this, and I, I don't, you know, not trying to be starky here, but uh, <laughs> it's kind of funny. I, I received a tweet from a guy who said, uh, I love this MLS is back thing. We should do it every year. Now, every year we should stop the season in the middle and get all the teams together and have some World Cup style tournament somewhere. And then we can resume the season after that. And it sort of dovetails a little bit with Mad Laughter's suggestion here. It, it is amazing how the way Americans consume soccer, they love tournaments, playoff, yep. knockout. And, and so, what do you mean they? Hold on a sec. What do you mean they? Anything, You're one of us, dude. <laughs> anything is sort of an excuse to, you know, and, and, and reading Mad Laughter's post, he wants to end all this, even after we've already determined all the World Cup spots with a one-off 
uh, neutral venue final somewhere, which he's clearly hoping it's U.S. and Mexico at full stadium. And, it, and his post is littered with references about how marketable this all is. It's funny how there, there's always that sort of mindset in the back of your mind of it. This is an excuse to create some sort of like sexy, fun tournament rather than just, I mean, there's nothing sexy about the hex. Everybody just plays everybody. Whoever has the most points goes to the World Cup. And, you know, we've all just agreed that's the best system to determine who the best teams are, which ultimately as a region, you want your best teams to go off and represent you at the World Cup. And but now this has become an excuse to, you know, let's try to make some sexy marketable tournament out of this as well. So it's kind of it's kind of amusing. Well, it is fun to say the hex. <laughs> I will submit this to you, though. Uh, there are many people out there that over the years have argued that one of the things holding back Major League Soccer is the the schedule and, and the seasons in which we play. And especially that it's it's the opposite of most of the rest of the world, uh, wherein as Major League Soccer starts in the end of February and plays until the end of November and the beginning of December. Everybody else we all know starts in the end of August, beginning of September and plays around the corner of the year and then finishes up in May and uh, an early part, uh, part of June. We, we know from watching Bundesliga that at times in the past, not so much anymore, during that winter break, they would have indoor tournaments that featured the Bundesliga teams in indoor types of formats. One thing that maybe could satisfy them, if, you, if Major League Soccer ever thought, all right, you know what, we are going to try to adjust and get on a different schedule and mirror what is happening around most of the world, you could then have this scenario play out in a month, you could extend it more, that happens. Obviously, this is happening in Orlando, so you would all go to a warm place, and that would be the diet for that time which would give you the benefit, and there are benefits, of being on the same, uh, the same calendar as most of the rest of the world, but also, to his point, give you the, uh, or to your friend's point that was uh, suggesting this, give him that tournament type of feel that he and evidently so many Americans, uh, <laughs> other, other than the name of David Mossy, crave and to have in their, in their life. But I don't, I don't see any of that happening anytime soon. But there will be continued questions about what the qualifying process is going to look like. And as I said, none of it, it it's not going to be fair. You're just going to have to accept that in the same way that, and by the way, it is, it is fun to say the hex. So losing the hex, I like saying the hex and, and explaining it to people. It, it, there's something, there's, there's a power to it. And so I would, I would be saddened if we, if we lost the hex. But people are going to have different ideas. Victor Montaliani, the, uh, the head of, uh, of CONCACAF, has been very, very clear that his priority is getting the club situation back and that as they continue to lose dates, it's going to be imperative that they find a way to, to satisfy picking three, potentially four uh, teams from CONCACAF to send to the next Men's World Cup in, in, uh, in Qatar with the limitations that we are going to have. I mean, the, the travel situation continues to evolve and to change almost every single week all around the world, and especially relative to the United States and what you can and cannot do. You know, while sometimes athletes are considered essential workers, you can't count on that happening everywhere in the world and security and health uh, issues right now are paramount. So I think that there are still some hurdles to overcome and there's still some things that we have not seen yet that are going to throw a monkey wrench into the situation right now. But ultimately, CONCACAF, like you said, is going to spit out three teams. Some teams are going to complain and possibly four teams. Uh, how they spit that out, 
I think is a daily work in progress and probably is evolving and changing even as we speak in the, uh, in the CONCACAF offices to try to figure out to do something in what we all recognize are very, very unique times. And so this is a challenge unlike which anybody has ever faced from a CONCACAF perspective to try to figure out a way to do it. And losing that US-Mexico game, that does matter. That is important to CONCACAF because that is the biggest rivalry and not having that type of situation in a, in a qualifying type of tournament while it's a hit. But like I said, maybe that's the price you pay for having gone through and, and going through this, uh, this type of situation. Anything else there uh, on, on Ask Alexi Mossy? That is it. All right. Well, we come to the end of another show. And at the end of each and every show, we give you one, uh, one for the road. And uh, we are saying goodbye uh, for now to the Bundesliga when it comes to our Fox broadcasting. And in doing so, we are also saying goodbye to some, uh, uh, to some wonderful friends of ours and colleagues of ours that have put so much of time and effort and heart into the Bundesliga uh, when it comes to someone like uh, Ian Joy, who I know you, Mossy, uh, have had a wonderful relationship with. This is a, uh, a man who has been the heart and soul of our Bundesliga coverage, uh, a man who, who lives and breathes not just Bundesliga, but German football. And he has taught me so much, and it's been such a pleasure to work with him over the years. And in any walk in life, you want to work with people that have a passion for what they're doing. And you spend two seconds with Ian Joy, and you recognize that his energy and his passion and his love for, as I said, the Bundesliga and for uh, German soccer is boundless and endless. And when you see him on TV talking about the Bundesliga, you want to care because of how much he cares. And that's, that's important in, every, in everything and including in, in sports to have people like that. And so, like, you know, this is a thank you to someone like, uh, like Ian Joy in front of the camera. This is a thank you to so many of the men and women that worked, uh, that worked hard behind the camera. Jeff Heyman, uh, one of our producers and our, and our fearless leaders when it, uh, when it came to putting on the Bundesliga. We've had a blast. I have learned a tremendous amount about the Bundesliga. Uh, Masi, I'll let you uh, chime in here because I know, you know you've worked on the Bundesliga for a number of years and you've seen our production and, and come in contact with all of these men and women that uh, have, you know, have made it uh, something uh, you know, a, that, that they have passion for and that they have um, its ownership for. And uh, it's, been a, it's been a hell of a ride. Yeah, I mean, the Bundesliga has dominated the last five years of my professional life, waking up at... Uh three in the morning, every Saturday and Sunday to cover it. Um, and I'm going to miss it. I love every second of it. It's a fantastic league. And so hopefully our paths cross again at some point. Um, oh, as far as, as far as Ian, just one of my favorite human beings, one of the nicest people you will ever meet. Uh, just incredible family, his wife, Nicole, who I love his kids who, as you know, I have a very special relationship with his young kids. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, the silver lining is he is moving to the East Coast near where my parents are. And so I go back to visit my parents a lot. So I'll be able to see Ian uh, whenever I'm back in the East Coast. So hopefully he'll get me tickets to NYCFC games. There you go. There you go. Well, look, we, you know, we make our way through life. And, and those of us that have chosen sports, uh, and in particular, when it comes to broadcasting, you, you weave in and out of people's lives and, and different uh, jobs and different locations. Uh, different circumstances and scenarios. And if you can count yourself, well, do count yourself lucky if you come in contact with people that, like I said, have, have a love and a passion for, for what they are doing. Uh, and in this case, it, it, uh, it's the game of soccer and in particular, uh, 
the German soccer. So thank you for, to him and to all the people that, the, that we work with, both in front of the camera and behind the camera, that, that bring that passion and bring that energy. Because without it, um, it's impossible to do. And, you know, we're seeing a, we're seeing a moment in time right now where, you know, one of the, the biggest energy generators out there in terms of broadcast and an in-game type of experience, the crowd uh, and the supporters are, are not there. And so even more so when we are watching these productions, you know, people, like I said, taking ownership and bringing that, that passion uh, and making you feel it through the television uh, and through that microphone, um, they are valuable. So thank you, Ian. Thank you, everybody uh, that uh, over the years has worked on uh, our, uh, our Bundesliga coverage. It's been an honor. It's been, a, it's been a pleasure. And, you know, continue to watch the Bundesliga. ESPN is taking it over right now, and I'm sure that they, uh, uh, they will do a, uh, a good job over there. All right, Mossy, we come to the end. Anything uh, else you want to say before we head out? That's it. All right. Continue to stay uh, safe and sane out there and do the things to protect yourself uh, and others. We will talk to you again next week. Uh, hit us up there on the social media platforms. Use that Ask Alexi or Ask Mossy out there. We had some really good ones this year, and we can, uh, this week, and we continue to have you know, good interaction when it comes to uh, the incredibly smart and, although I haven't met you, I'm sure good-looking listeners and viewers out there of the State of the Union podcast. We'll talk again next week. And until then, size the day. <laughs>